This is the Biz News Podcast, one-on-one conversations with experts in business and personal development. It is legend that the founders of Capital Cities Broadcasting, now part of the Disney Corporation, would tell their television and radio station managers that before they did well financially, the stations must do good for their communities. That philosophy is similar to the theme that authors Scott Roy and Roy Whitten have detailed in their newest book, Sell Well, Do Good. Mr. Roy says the book applies the author's human-centric selling framework to social enterprises in their work to do good for society's poor. He joins us for this Biz News interview. When uh, your new book, written with your uh, business partner, Roy Witten, has a kind of a puzzling subtitle, DQ Selling for Social Enterprises. What does that mean? You're not talking about Dairy Queen. No, <laughs> DQ is DQ is, uh, is is like IQ, which is about your intelligence, and like EQ, which is about emotional intelligence. Um, DQ is what we call decision intelligence, and what what we mean by that is that we believe that great selling happens when two things happen on the part of the customer. The customer explores their problems to a depth and a level of concern and actual urgency to decide they want to do something about it. And then that's followed by a solution that is provided by uh, a salesperson. So what we believe great selling is all about is all about really addressing the problems customers have first and engaging in a deep conversation about that rather than just pitching and persuading and trying to convince people to buy a product when that problem is not understood first, you say. So that's it's a very, very important uh, way that we teach selling all around the world, no matter if it's, a, if it's a large business or if it's a social enterprise. And that's the second part of DQ Selling for Social Enterprises is this particular book is written toward social enterprises, but actually it applies to any kind of business. Well, what, what do you tell uh, uh, business leaders when they're faced with those dual tasks of uh, meeting profits, and also meeting their mission goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, we were just kind of chatting about this when we were just getting tuned up here, but the, the real challenge here is oftentimes people see doing good and making profit as being diametrically opposed or, or, or polar opposites. And we don't believe that's the case. We believe you can... Uh, you, you can do good and be profitable at the same time. And that's really what social enterprise is about. Social enterprises and social entrepreneurs, which are just booming now all over the world, um, are you know, entrepreneurs that basically have uh, a mission-oriented part of why they're selling what they're selling. And they also have a profit mission as well. So for example, um, let's say, let's take a solar lighting company. Uh, they have a mission to cut greenhouse gases and carbon emissions, et cetera, to bring down uh, you know, air pollution, bring down um, the, uh, the temperature of the earth. It, it continues to escalate for climate change. And so therefore, they're selling a product that is achieving an environmental and social good at the same time. So it doesn't mean that it, it can't be profitable. It just means that you need to think through what is it that people need and want, and then how can I get it to them? And if it just so happens that what you're selling is a, is a, is a, is a mission-oriented or an environmental good or a social good, then you get both at the same time. What about uh, the social 
enterprises that where the leadership is selling. Ugh, gosh, it's yeah. dirty. My hands are messy. All just talking about it. What do you tell them? <laughs> well, you, you, Doug, you're you're absolutely right onto the uh, onto the uh, real issue that a lot of social entrepreneurs have to deal with because many of them come from the social side. You know, they're people who have attended school and, you know, maybe they're masters in public health and they want to come up with an app that is used by community health workers in the middle of Ghana, let's say, or in the middle of Belgium, let's say. So therefore, they're in love with the technology they've created. They're in love with the mission they have. And then they just sort of think that whatever they have is somehow going to miraculously get into the hands of people who will buy it from them. <laughs> so a lot of times entrepreneurs don't, these social entrepreneurs don't necessarily think through all the things that need to happen in order to build a sales function within their organization. Or as you said, they have a disdain for it. And the reason they have a disdain for it is because the world over people believe that selling is fu fundamentally a, di a dirty subject. It's a dark art. And, uh, and we don't believe that. We actually believe that selling is, is really a, a noble art if you do it in the right way. If you do it in a way that where it's greedy and you're just trying to push a product, hit your quota, make a profit, make your commission, make your number for the quarter and not really care about your customers, well, you know, you're, then you get into the dirty side of selling. But actually the clean side of selling is that you help people find problems they have, appreciate them at a much greater depth than they ever did before. And then once they see what the problem is, is costing them, then they're motivated to do something about it. And then your product can then be fit into that situation. So it's a real win-win for the customer. Who do you see uh, leading this charge in this direction? Uh-huh. Well, in social enterprise, I mean, it's, it's really... You know, it's been around for a while. I mean, you could trace it back to the 70s uh, where you had organizations that were beginning to see you could use business to do good. The two could align. It really caught fire uh, in, in the early 2000s, quite frankly. And uh, there are many different ways you can think about social enterprise, the kind of organizations they are. Some, some and especially in the West, tend to look, to look at disadvantaged groups of people, like, for example, um, ex-prisoners or, uh, let's say, um, um, you know, kind of un undereducated youth in the, you know, in the inner city, for example. And um, so they'll set up businesses that will employ those people, you say. Now, in the developing world, that can also be true. Um, but in developing countries like in Kenya or Uganda or Zambia or let's say Cambodia or India, um, you, you not only are employing people, but you also are selling a product that has a social or environmental good as well. So for example, in Cambodia, where you have um, people who um, uh, use the bathroom out, outdoors as opposed to using a toilet, because that's the way they were raised, right? They would just go in the bushes. So when we worked with a client there, they were, uh, the client was an organization called International Development Enterprises. They had the concept of let's, let's sell a, a very inexpensive cement-based toilet where you, know, you could basically uh, use it as a latrine with a silo underground and it would contain the waste. And so when we worked with that organization, we helped them set up their entire uh, selling system around that, uh, around selling and delivering that product. And so, so just to give you an example, they've gone from um, coverage of about, I think it was 21% of the people used a toilet in the seven provinces uh, where they were focused, just 21%. So 79% went out of doors. 
And that was about 10 years ago. Today, it's reaching almost 90% in certain areas. So it's a huge social good that's being done. And at the same time, they've sold uh, nearly 350,000 toilets. And then uh, copycat uh, companies have sold an additional 700,000 toilets. So over a million toilets in those seven provinces have really transformed the lives of people. And you know, kids aren't sick anymore. You know, families are healthier. And well, you know, there's, there's more well-being. That, that's a business that did not exist before then. That's right. That's right. And, 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 and if you think of philanthropy and, and where philanthropy has come from, uh, Doug, uh, is basically it used to be really more relief and giveaways. You know, you give people toilets. But what they found is a lot of times people wouldn't use those toilets, for example. Or if uh, you're a farmer and, you know, you, you have a project where, uh, seeds are given or, or fertilizers, this kind of thing. Uh, they'll use it for one season as a giveaway, but then they become dependent on that aid uh, to be given to them all the time. So they don't become self-sufficient, you say, and they don't rebuild their economies. Now, if you contrast that to the example I just used with, with uh, international development enterprises, what they did was they actually built a new business that is thriving today. And in fact, is in, impacting a lot of uh, uh, small cement companies, uh, cement pouring companies in these seven provinces where you know, they're making a very good living at what they're doing now. And they're also solving a social good. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is one of the things that is so exciting about social enterprise, especially in development, is that it's, it's, it's beginning to, to take out the, the philanthropy of just giving things away when you don't really need to do that. And instead, you're really helping people become self-sufficient, you say. And uh, now there always will be times when you need to provide relief like in Yemen, for example, or Syria, you know, where you have a war-torn war area or like the Tigray region of Ethiopia, you know, you've got those situations where that is appropriate, where you give money away or give food away or give seeds away because that's a dire circumstance. But the vast majority of development in the, in the developing world needs to be focused on how do we rebuild economies? How do we get people to stop uh, doing things that hurt them uh, from a health perspective, et cetera? How does would this uh, play, do you think, in the developed Western world, especially here in the United States? There aren't that many uh, people going without a toilet, certainly. Right. Well, that's what I was saying before, is that oftentimes the, um, you know, in the developing world, you're, you're, you're trying to create a, a product purchase that is going to you know, literally do good. Uh, in the United States, it's a bit different. It's oftentimes working with underprivileged groups or groups that have been disadvantaged in one way or another. Or, uh, you know, it's, for example, you know, uh, I know of one in the, in the United Kingdom, for example, where they take female prisoners who, uh, who are released from prison and they, 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 they don't have skills, they don't have jobs. And so what they do is they teach them how to make uh, chocolate. And so this, uh, I, I forget the name of the organization, but they actually package the chocolate, they teach these women how to do it, and then they, they employ these women and then they sell this chocolate through some very nice uh, distributors uh, you know, like Sainsbury's and organizations like that in, in the UK. So that's an example of how you can actually do good in a, in a slightly different way than what's happening when you're selling a toilet or a set of solar lights, let's say. 
So there you are talking to a group of business people, let's say, my imaginary group here. Uh, and one of them says, I don't need that extra work. I've got to meet the, the goals set by my board. What do you tell them? Yeah, well, as far as as far as far sell well to do good, is that what you mean? Right. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, Doug, is that our, our roots are actually in commercial work, okay? My business partner, Roy, and I, when we started the company back in 2009, um, we were actually working in London and in the UK primarily at that time. And we were working with regular commercial companies, international companies, you know? And uh, we were teaching them how to do very, very complex uh, high dollar sales. And what's really interesting is the approach of DQ is exactly what we did there, which is decision intelligence, focusing on the problem first and the solution second. Um, and it's exactly the type of approach we use when we're in Zambia, you say, it's just applied slightly differently. You know, in one case, you're selling a, a, a network system that's worth $100 million, let's say, a telecommunication system. But in Zambia, you're selling a $100 uh, set of solar lights, okay? The $100 million deal is going to take 18 months to close, right? <laughs> the one in Zambia is going to take 30 minutes to close. But it's still the same process of examining first, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And then what's the solution that will solve that problem? So the problem is that most salespeople are just way too quick into demonstrating the products that they have to sell. This is true around the world. They pitch, they persuade, they're trying to hit their targets. They're, you know, they're trying to move as fast as they can. They're trying to make the sale. They don't wanna waste time. And what they walk right past is all of the fuel that they need in order to create the sale they're trying to generate, which is an examination of what is the problem that the customer has and what is the cost of that problem? And really having a meaty conversation about that until the point where the client understands the problem at a much deeper level than they did than before that salesperson had that call. So that's what we would say to uh, a, a business in central New York City, or we'd say to a business in, in, you know, out, in, out in the center of India, is that your people are way too quick into pitching the product or solution. And that's why your sales are flat. That's why your sales are hard to get. That's why your targets are difficult to reach. Is it tough to get people to understand that? Because it would seem really a tough thing, a tough nut to crack. Yeah, I mean, we've got some models that really help to explore this. I mean, because when, when we say to people, look, um, selling is not pitching. People go, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> wait a minute. I've always known that selling was pitching, right? That's what we have in our mind. But when we say, no, it's actually not, that's the myth. Great selling is not pitching. Great selling actually starts with great listening. And when you listen and you hear the problem and understand the problem, then you're able to do something that really makes, you know, makes impact on that client so that the client sees that there's a problem that's worth solving. Actually, there's one thing that we always do with every client, Doug. It's, it's during, the, during the discussion of the problem when we're nearing the end of bottoming out the problem or the set of problems they have. And they're always much greater than what most people think they are. Okay, so in other words, that has a big impact on a client where they begin more, they begin to get more concerned about the problem they have. Okay, but there's one thing we do that I would say probably one in 1000 salespeople do. 
And this is absolutely the one thing they absolutely should be doing. And that is to calculate the cost of the problem if it isn't solved. You see, so when somebody understands that they have a problem, that's one thing. But when they understand it's really costing the money, uh, you know, then all of a sudden they get very serious about solving it. So, for example, uh, when we hear uh, companies tell us, well, our salespeople just aren't closing sales or they're getting a lot of objections or we have a pipeline, but it's filled with peanut butter. It's just like it, there's nothing moving through the pipeline. I can guarantee you that the cost of the problem is not being used by those salespeople. And because the cost of the problem creates all the urgency to solve the problem. I want to give you an example uh, and not just leave the theory out there. Okay, so I, I have a home here in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. I also have a home in London, England. My wife is English, right? And so she doesn't want to move to the United States for, for what reason I can't figure out. But <laughs> so anyway, I'm over in, the, I'm over in London um, and there's a man who takes care of my home here while I'm gone. And he gets my mail and he opens up my mail to make sure that we don't have any, some, you know, anything urgent that I need to know about. Well, he opens up the water bill and he calls me up and he says, Scott, we have a problem here. I said, what, what's wrong? He says, well, the KUB bill came in and it was $883. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, I can see your reaction, Doug. I'm sure the listeners will think, wow, that's a lot of water. Well, obviously I had a leak. Normally it's 30 to $35 a month, right? A leak, you had a river. Yeah, I had a river. <laughs> so, so I'm over in London, okay? So if, if you had received a bill like that, would you be the kind of person who would sort of put it down and say, well, I'll get to that next week? Or would you be like on the telephone immediately calling your utility? Which would you do? I'd probably call the utility just, just for the fun of it. Just for the fun of it. Yeah. What's going on here? Well, that example is exactly, that's exactly what I did. I mean, I immediately called the, called the utility to find out what was going on. And that is an example of why the cost of the problem is so important is because it creates urgency or in the case where actually, let's say my, my water bill was only $41 instead of being $35. I might not have had the urgency to pick up the telephone and call KUB and find out what was going on. I probably would put it down in my stack, maybe send an email, maybe not do anything at all because it wasn't much money. And so that number is so important to any kind of selling. And if salespeople will calculate that cost of the problem and then, and then do that with their customer, that they, you don't do it very importantly, you don't do it for them, you do it with them or have them do it, you give them the instructions of how to do it. Then what happens is they come back and either they're okay with that number and it's not big enough, so there's not really a business case to spend money on a, or, or time on a problem, or they're gonna come back going, I'm ready to move now. How fast can you get here to solve this problem? You say, and, and that one thing, I wish if, if anything that your listeners would take away from our call today, is that one principle. And that can be applied in selling and non-selling situations, by the way, okay? That can be applied in project management, for example, uh, or it can be applied in a family. You know, when you finally realize what, what a problem you have is actually costing you, then that will help clarify whether or not you wanna spend the time to solve it. Scott, your book, uh, Sell Well, Do Good, it's been out now for only about a month, but what's been the reaction to it? 
You know, I, I've just been so thrilled, actually, uh, Doug, with with this with this book because this is the second book we've published. Our first one, as you know, is called Decision Intelligence Selling or DQ Selling, which uh, came out last year and is geared more toward Western business, B two B type business. This one is geared more toward B two C type business. In other words, business to consumer. And um, and I I got to tell you I almost weep when I read <laughs> what people have written about this on the reviews and uh, and and certainly the people who were our early book reviewers who endorsed the book just to hear some of the comments that were made and uh, we've had just a stellar response so far and um, and in fact um, I had one gentleman that I worked with oh I think it was probably eight years ago uh, he lives in Tanzania Africa. And he is the uh, he's the managing director of a very large solar lighting company that works in about eight uh, African countries. And he said, I heard the podcast because uh, we have a sell well, do good podcast as well. Um, and and he's I heard the podcast. I want to buy the book, but I can't get it here in Tanzania easily. Can you help me? <laughs> and so anyway, I got the book to him uh, electronically and then he read it and he says, okay, I want one for every one of my managers to, to read. I want everyone to get this and understand what I know because everything in that book is what you taught me eight years ago and taught our teams eight years ago. And that's really what we wanted to do, Doug, is we wanted to share our IP, our knowledge about how to sell with the world, essentially. We really want people to get this is that selling can be a really noble profession, or it can be a real dirty profession. It's your choice. But there are certain things that you, you know, if you'll pay attention to, you can become very, very proud of what you do as a salesperson. And certainly DQ selling is a cutting edge methodology that really engages clients at a very deep level. I think one of the, one of the, uh, the best endorsements we had here was from Jocelyn Wyatt on the back of the book. She said, Roy and Scott explore how to apply human-centered design to sales and ensure social enterprises can scale and thrive. And she's the CEO of IDEO.org, which is an organization that's all about human-centered design. And so uh, we've been coined as being this methodology is a human-centered methodology in sales. And uh, we don't use that very often, but, but people do say that from time to time. It, it does sound like a, a pretty good description for what you have been talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I've been in sales um, now 44 years, okay, my, my entire life, basically. I've built um, very significant sales organizations, built, uh, I was a co-founder of an insurance company that today has a couple of billion dollars in assets here in the United States. And it, this was all direct sales, uh, consumer, business to consumer sales. And I got to tell you, is that the stuff that I learned 40 years ago from the company that taught me uh, is really alive and well in this book as well, plus all the other experiences I've had over the years. But they were the ones who taught me many, many years ago about selling ethically, about, about sell well, and, and you will do good in the world, and you will do well yourself. And um, so I really have them to thank. That's the Southwestern Company uh, out of Nashville, Tennessee, that's been employing college students to sell educational books door to door for about 160 years. <laughs> so I started doing that, and then I started recruiting people and training people. And I, so I've been in sales my entire life. But but selling in this way is is really a joyful experience as opposed to a real slog. And unfortunately, we see way too many people in sales come and go because they make it a slog. You know, they make it the kind of thing that isn't very fun to do. 
but there is a way that you can do selling that is fun. And in fact, it's not just fun, it's really profitable. I mean, you can really, really do well in selling this way. Anything you'd like to add, uh, Scott? Um, yeah, visit our website, uh, it, certainly uh, wrpartnership.com. And there's information there about our methodologies. There's also information about Sell Well, Do Good. You can get it on amazon.com. And uh, also, uh, I think Apple Books, you can get it through that as well. Um, and uh, also, there's a Sell Well, Do Good podcast, it's a series of seven uh, podcasts uh, or seven episodes. Uh, it's about the book, and it's an interview we did about the book. So uh, thank you very much for having us on again, and or having me on again. And uh, Roy sends, uh, sends his hellos and his regrets uh, today. He was tied up with something else. But anyway, great to, great to be with you. You've been watching the Biz News Podcast. We welcome your input. Send your email to editor at biznews.com. Thanks for watching.